Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You are most scared of an opinion about yourself. Not only that, you formed this opinion when you were a kid, so you are most scared of the opinion of a four-year-old. You could probably go and have a look and go back to that kid and see if that kid got it right. And here's a spoiler alert, they didn't get it right. They didn't. I'm going to be honest, I was a little nervous about interviewing today's guests. I wasn't sure if he was the right fit for this show. I did my usual research in the weeks leading up to the interview, a healthy amount of stalking, reading some of his work, listening to his podcast. And whilst I thought his messages were great, I wasn't convinced on his delivery. I thought he seemed a little too nice to be that genuine. He's softly spoken, his words are deliberate, but what I found when I met him and peeled back the layers was a really fascinating human who has had such a diverse and interesting life. I'm talking about Jamin Fraser. He's a life coach and author. He's the founder of The Insecurity Project and specializes in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, business owners eradicate insecurity so they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs. All sounds bloody wonderful to me because I know we all suffer from that stuff at some time in our lives. Uh, Jamin is also widely known as a leading voice on the subject of personal insecurity And I can't wait to dig into this conversation and see where it takes us. Jamin, it is fabulous to have you on the show on the other side of the mic, as it were. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You are going to be interesting, I know for sure, like you have such a diverse, fascinating background. So let's kick in. (laughs) If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Personal insecurity. Insecurity, big topic. Okay, why is this a topic that you are so passionate about, Damon? I think primarily I see it as a topic that causes untold and unnecessary suffering. I I think it's a, a universal issue. No human escapes their childhood without a measure of insecurity. It's not possible. I don't think it's desirable either, by the way, but that's another subject. It's not possible. Every child comes into their adult self with a measure of woundedness and some limiting belief about their value and worth. Uh, and then they compensate as a result of what they think's wrong. So that unresolved angst around value and worth creates a raft of pretty catastrophic issues for human beings if left unresolved. So for whatever reason, it's a problem that just seems so logical and predictable to me. I have an engineering bent to the way my brain works. I love structure. I love deconstructing things to their smallest working parts so I can understand and then reorganize and optimize. So insecurity, it just feels like an incredibly solvable problem. And therefore, I'd love people to understand more about it because it could uh, radically reduce their suffering in the world. There's lots of suffering you wouldn't want to reduce, even if you could, because it's very meaningful and we grow. But there's a bunch of unnecessary suffering that comes from not understanding the cause. So, uh, yeah, that's in a nutshell why I'm so committed to talking about insecurity. 
It's an interesting topic. And as we spoke about just before we came on air that, you know, you'll probably you Google insecurity and you're the person globally that talks about this, which is uh, a fascinating thing to be known for. But I think, you know, works with like Dr. Brene Brown that's, you know, brought forward, uh, you know, the whole topic about vulnerability. I think people are probably more open to this now. You've been in this space for some 13 years or so. Is that right? Yeah, I've been coaching for 13 years. And while the Insecurity Project is only six years old. I've always been committed to a deep level of change. I have an aversion to behaviour management as a change strategy. I think it's such an unkind offering as a coach to to give a client a short-term boost um, only to leave them stuck deeper down the track because the short-term thing has worn off. So when I when I realised that behaviour was just the end of the assembly line and beliefs were what were really driving behaviour, I, I thought I must understand how beliefs work and how they are formed in the first place and therefore how they could be changed. And so all my work led to why, why do we get stuck? What is the cause of dysfunction? It always came back to some kind of limiting belief and the worst of those limiting beliefs were always deeply personal. They were always doubts, fears, insecurities around value and worth. And so I just knew that I had to understand that and that's what I've kind of devoted my my thinking to and my coaching to from the very start really and then doubled down on the idea of insecurity and insecurity alone uh, six years ago when I branded the Insecurity Project. It's fascinating and how you just, you know, neatly tied that in a bow before about saying, you know, that this is, you're very pragmatic and that engineering kind of the way you like to structure stuff. But insecurity to me doesn't seem that simple or easy, I guess, like, you know, in terms of digging in, because I love the fact that actually if it was that easy, like I'm like, righto, come on, let's do it. We'll do something with each other now. Fix me. Come <laughs> on, I want 20 minutes. Are there common insecurities that people have? Like, do you see threads and similarities or I mean I imagine your clients are all different ages as well do you see different common threads through different ages yeah there's an incredibly common and unifying theme around insecurity as as inadequacy it's just I'm afraid there's an inadequacy with me and I don't want you to know it so all my energy gets into proving and defending myself so that you never know who I am because if you knew who I am you'd think differently about me Mm. so it's the same no matter what age I find that I very rarely work with people under 35 just because it's such a vulnerable subject. And I, I honestly think insecurity can be like rocket fuel in your 20s. I think having that kind of motivation to prove yourself and defend yourself, especially if someone slighted you or someone said you can't or you won't, it's like, tell me again what I'm not going to do. Oh, that's really useful to me. Now I've got some reason to drive myself beyond the realms of what's normally possible to prove that I am better than you said I was. It's incredibly destructive. And, you know, when you get there and you get to stand on the mountaintop and say, see, see, I told you so, it's often that the person who said you couldn't didn't even remember they said you couldn't anyway and so didn't really give a shit. <laughs> so. How true is that? All those teachers, you know, think about all the, you know, the movie stars and stuff, you know, very famous, um, successful people go, see, Mr., you know, whatever, Brown in, you know, class five, you said I couldn't sing or it's fascinating, isn't it, that we harbour that, um, to your point, insecurity or um, resentment towards someone that said we couldn't for so bloody long. It's really interesting. And there's no point saying that's not useful. It is. Like I used to be on a mission to eradicate insecurity from the world and then I realised, hang on, to say you're on a mission, oh, no, now you're preaching. 
like I hate it when someone tells me they're on a mission for something. I'm like, here we go. Okay, I can't, I can't let you say that without then talking about your background. So tell me, how did you get into coaching? Because it's fascinating. You started coaching 13 years ago, which, I mean, there were not a lot. There's a lot of coaches around now, but not then. So how did you get into this area? Yeah, so background, my background, I was a preacher. So I, I was a church pastor and a youth pastor before that. So um, I got given the leadership of the church that I grew up in when I was 23 and it was so meaningful and so purpose-driven for me and felt like what I was called to do, what I was meant to do, very wholehearted about it. But the experience of being invited into people's world as pastor, of which I constantly was given that privilege, people were experiencing difficulty in their life, they were hoping for something better, and I was the one that they would go to to talk about these kind of things. And, so, and was there a sense of expectation about you fixing it as well? Of course, but well, me fixing it and God fixing it. So, you know, if if I pray, if I just believe, if I have faith and God will magically intervene in my world and sort my shit out without me knowing how or why, that's the hope for change. And a lot of rhetoric around kind of childlike faith within the Christian world that I grew up in, which seemed really spiritual when I thought about it early on, but then just seemed so vacuous and, and immature and... Um, dangerous the more I understood the implications of remaining a child in an adult world. Because I was convinced that we were invited to participate in the process. Whatever you thought about God's involvement, I I was sure that we had a part to play too. And so I thought self-awareness could only be a good thing. I thought responsibility and choice were, were probably two of the most important gifts we were ever given as people. But it seemed most people want to give those gifts away and live with the illusion of no choice and stay with blame and excuse. That was far better. So that was really confusing to me and then it became really problematic because year in, year out, I was having the same conversations with the same people and, and no one was changing. And so if you had the same conversations more than more than three times, now you're pretending you haven't had them before and then it gets really weird. And so I was curious about, you know, like if I can't be wholehearted about something, I'm not in. And so the model was breaking down for me. I didn't have a replacement at the time. And then a mentor of mine introduced me to some coaching frameworks and I was gobsmacked. I thought, where's this been? Like, where have these tools been my whole life? This stuff seems like, how are you supposed to be a human if you don't understand this stuff? (laughs) That was literally, it instantly was like, I need to learn more about this. So... That same day, I looked up coaching training, found the first institute on the top of Google, signed up, paid my money that same day and signed up for a diploma in life coaching because it just seemed like it resonated so deeply that I know that I'm a kind of person who was designed to be useful to others. I feel like that's how I see the world. I I love human behavior. I, I think people are amazing. I believe in people's inherent goodness. I think that's where I'm best suited in the people space. So yeah, the coaching just was a no brainer. As soon as I saw that as a technology, I had to get it. And then, you know, four weeks in, I'd already started my first business as a life coach and loved the fact that there was no barrier to entry, just there was no rules. It was the wild west. You had a, <laughs> had a bunch of... That's why there's so many coaches now, right? At least you yeah. had some training. I don't think that, you're probably the first person I've heard that's actually done that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's great. And everyone was saying how easy it was going to be and how much money I was going to make. And I got caught up in the hype and I was all jacked up on Mountain Dew and called my wife and told her I'm going to start a coaching business. And she's like, wait, what? What are you going to do? 
like, oh, no. And But I'm like, I've got this. This is going to be incredible. It's going to be so easy. And it wasn't very easy at all. How long did it take to get your first client? Well, I gave myself four weeks. I had four weeks of money because I was also a school chaplain at the time. So I canned that job, gave myself four weeks to get my first client and four weeks came and went and I didn't land a single client. But I'd burnt the bridge. I'd shut the door behind me. And so I remember driving around town just going, what have I done? And the serendipity of a backhanded comment from the school principal when I resigned who told me that I should probably go work at Campbell Page, which were an employment agency. They need good people and maybe I could do some good there. And it was it was a backhanded comment because he called me an idiot four times for even considering that being a life coach in a country town was a good idea. Anyway, so I went in there and it was like they were waiting for me. They were just having a conversation around what in the world they were going to do with these people who they had to get work, but they were dealing with a whole bunch of psychological issues and they were so stuck in their ways and they'd been through every program they needed a coach they, they didn't need a psychologist they needed a coach g'day i'm a coach a coach what do you do um uh, you know i help people get unstuck all right great how would you do that and i'm just kind of i made it up on the spot and by the end of the conversation i developed a six-week program to work with their most long-term unemployed clients i priced it in a way that surprised even me and they didn't blink and then before i knew what i was working with um, i was working in three locations coaching six clients a day and they're most stuck clients, and they gave me six weeks. But what an amazing training ground, Jamin, like to work with those people. Like, I mean, you know, normally you think about coaches, you're working with business people that want to be better and, you know, they're at the top of their game and they recognise now to have a coach is, you know, like a sporting athlete. You know, you have lots of different people in your team that you support you. But having, you know, people that have been long-term unemployed, you know, like really challenging situations, that would have been fascinating. What did you learn from that? I learned everything from that. But I, I think the first thing I learned is I need leverage because if I walk in here as another person delivering some other bullshit program to add to all the other bullshit programs they've done, I've got nothing. So I just pushed that one really hard. Like in my book, Unhindered the Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity, practice five is get help from someone who doesn't care about you. And here's where I learned that. Because you'd think to deal with existential angst and the fear of not being good enough and lack of value and worth, you'd think you'd need someone who's going to believe in you, encourage you, pump up your tyres, support you. Those people get in the way. They rescue you. And until you realise no one's coming to save you, then you cannot solve this problem. And so I pushed this as hard as I could. I can still remember being given this client in one of the employment agencies and the caseworker said, this guy is hard work. He's been through all of our programs. He's a dead shit, just to be fair. But, you know, we've got to fill your program because apparently you're here now. So here you go, you can have this guy. He sits in the dark room playing PlayStation all day. His dad bankrolls him, so he's got zero motivation to get a job. Here you go. And so I thought, right, if I don't get leverage from the very moment I walk in there, I, this is going to hurt me. And I don't, doesn't matter how much I'm getting paid, I'm not going to enjoy six weeks of, you know, poking my finger in my eye and so I just walked in there and I said g'day mate I'm just wondering are you a piece of shit and he says what I said I need to know like are you a piece of shit and he stood up and walked straight towards me got up in my face and said no I am not don't you ever talk to me like that again like, oh fantastic these guys out here just said you're a dead shit and like I couldn't possibly believe it was true but I just had to find out from you and in, in an instant I had him right because 
Now he can't tell me some story that he's happy being in a dark room playing PlayStation all day. It's like, what's going on? Like, don't tell me you're happy. Don't tell me this is it. What's what's wrong? What are you afraid of? Like, what do you want? And the moment I could come in as not another person who wanted them to do something they don't want to do, if I, I don't care, by the way, like, I don't need you to do anything. My life's fine. I won't, I won't lose sleep over you. I'll forget your name. <laughs> like, I'm not here to save you. So, But you tell me what you want and I'll give you everything I've got to get you more of that. But you've got to want it. And so that was just life-changing. When I saw that and I saw what happened in their eyes when they realized that here was a conversation with someone who didn't have a vested interest and everyone has a vested interest. Everyone wanted something from them or for them. And so... I stumbled across one of these seven essential practices by in that experiment realized, okay, the hero always needs a guide, but the guide is not the hero. And that's the great trap of coaches, counselors, psychologists. They confuse the world about who the hero is. And I think so many of them go into that industry because they like rescuing people. That's how they cover their insecurity. That's how they get to show their good by apparently helping other people but it's a cruel thing to do because you end up weakening people on their journey by rescuing them but on that i mean you must get a lot out of it i imagine and being in this game for so long what what is the greatest joy or pleasure you get out of coaching people especially in the space of insecurity and vulnerability oh look the ripple effect to me is the thing that i'm constantly staggered by because this is how the world gets healed It's one person, one at a time, being willing to go back into their past, examine the structure of their childhood, the worst things they've considered are true about themselves, to plumb the depths of those accusations and opinions and assumptions and realise they're not true, and to actually heal themselves, to free themselves from those narratives, and then to be able to show up to life with nothing to prove and nothing to defend, like that actually raises the collective consciousness of the planet that then brings a healing energy to those around. That changes what's possible for those they interact with. So I say to people consistently that if you're going to work on your insecurity and come into the world unhindered, that changes the next three generations, whether you want it to or not. That that will totally change the way you do your marriage or your key relationship, which will change the way you parent your kids, which will change your kids' experience of a key relationship, which will change how they expect their key relationship to be, which will then change their kids. Like, so it's three generations that will have a different experience of life off the back of your courage and kindness to examine your worst fears about yourself and realise they're a work of fiction. They're not actually true. Yeah, that I mean, it's amazing. I mean, talking about that stuff, I've done some work in a generational trauma space and you look backwards and you think about like, what did your parents go through? What did your grandparents go through? And actually the impact of the trauma that you're, you're feeling and you're experiencing now, you know, some people think that that's because of something that happened to them as a kid. Well, what this work shows is actually it's something that happened generations before that you had no control over. But to your point about the reverse of that, it's actually lovely to think about that in future, you know, that my actions now and everything that I do and say and, you know, change or acknowledge can actually have a really positive impact in my life and my family's life or, you know, the friends as well, because we all have impact on those around us, not just family, into future, which is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. It's lovely. Yeah, it is. And I've come across that work too around the generational trauma. And I believe that's absolutely true. But so what? I think when you understand that woundedness is the gift, 
then you stop trying to find the reason why your woundedness is is the block, is the thing that prevents you from change. And you go, huh, look at that. That's the opportunity for my change. So if you didn't come in wounded by your generations, you would wound yourself anyway. So even if you come in having given a clean slate and a brilliant start, by the time you are seven, you will have already cursed yourself. So don't worry about what anyone else has done. You, you will have done far worse by the time you're seven. So that's great because then when you get to an adult, you've got some work to do. There's there's some exercise for you to do in the gym of life to become mature and strong, and that is to go back and reparent yourself and to review the narratives and the assumptions and the opinions and the agreements and set yourself free. So, so give me an example of something, and obviously you're not talking about any client names and stuff, but if there is something that you, um, that comes up often, about an insecurity that like a lot of people have from childhood that they're still harboring, you know, well into their adult years. What's a common one? Uh, okay, so let's go parents get divorced when you're four. So happens frequently. The misdirection of that is really powerful because it's not a fun experience. for If you're a child, if you're the firstborn, say, even worse, to watch your parents, your safety, your love, your certainty, your world, um, you watch them experience the breakdown of their relationship, you experience the chaos that ensues, you're caught up in that. That's a very difficult experience for a four-year to go through. But but what's actually the most difficult thing to go through is the personalization of that. So, you know, we're sense-making creatures. So we don't get the luxury of just watching the world. We are involved in it and we, we are convinced we're implicit in our suffering. And so we're armed with two sense-making questions for every experience and conversation event we go through. Question one, why did that happen? Question two, what does it mean about me? And whether you are aware of how you've answered those questions or not, they are being answered. So a four-year-old who's watching their parents reject each other is asking, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And, And they're also looking around at all their friends who it's not happening to. And in their four-year-old mind, they're thinking, I'm involved in this. My parents were fine before I came along. I think I did this. I think I ruined this. I think I created stress and anxiety and I've come between my parents. So what does that mean about me? It means I'm dangerous. It means I hurt the people I love. It means I'm problematic. I didn't want to be, I didn't try to be, but there's something about me which does damage in the world. So that's the only way I can make sense of it. Now, that is an incredibly common pattern. In fact, almost inescapable that a child seeing the breakdown of the family does not in some way blame themselves. Um, and so the irony of that is if you're watching that on a movie, if you were to see that play out and you are objective to that, you're a dispassionate observer, there's not one moment consideration given to the fact that that child is to blame. You know, the kid can barely tie their shoelaces, let, let alone destroy a marriage. And yet that child in their wisdom has with 100% certainty arrived at the conclusion that it is their fault and it is a reflection of their a problem with them. And so they accuse themselves of being dangerous, being bad, of being destructive, and then become certain around that. And then their whole life pivots off the back of that accusation. And now everything becomes a strategy to prove and defend so that no one else ever finds that's true. So then that plays into their adult relationship. Sometimes that shows up as um, they end up rejecting people before they get a chance to get close because if they get close, eventually they're going to find out who they really are and it's going to end badly anyway. So that's an incredibly common pattern. 
And how do you help people work through that? You literally go down, you know, what you've done very quickly there, like in terms of breaking it up, but you get to that source, the the real kind of um, kernel, I guess, that's the problem. And then you still, if you use an analogy, like a splinter, you know, it's deep within, <laughs> embedded in your skin as a kid, and you help them kind of, you know, dig it out over time. So have you seen some incredible breakthroughs in this sort of space? Like in- oh, Every day of the week. Like, because when you understand what actually went on, like, I love the work of Don Miguel Ruiz. I think his Four Agreements is one of the greatest books ever written. And he says, look, you've got to understand it's not the words spoken to you that change your life, just the ones you agree with. So no one has the power to bless you or curse you without your permission. So you're at the centre of this drama, by the way. And when you see that, then that gives you the power to change this. So you break through the misdirection of, oh, because my parents rejected each other and rejected me, that's why I fear rejection. And realize, no, 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 that's not true. When they were rejecting each other, you thought the reason they were rejecting each other was because of you, and you accused yourself of being a bad person then. So you started this. You're not the victim in this story. You're the bully. So the way out of this is to go back, that four-year-old, and review the data, like actually review the data, which might seem terrifying because your whole life you've been running and hiding from this so that no one proves it's true. But what if it's not true? What if you were too quick to accuse yourself? What if you didn't see all the data? What if it's an assumption that has holes in it? So if you were to go back and see it clearly, you could know for sure whether it's right or not. And if it's not right, it doesn't take time to change this. This changes right in the moment when you realize it's a misunderstanding and that is not true. That is not who you are. So there's a lot of angst in going back there. But, you know, people ask me, you know, what are you afraid to touch, Damon? Like, what do you, what do you refer to an expert? Like, what would be an example? Of that? You know, like trauma and abuse. And yeah, but it's not the trauma or abuse that ruined their life. It's when that was happening, that person made sense of it and implicated themselves and accused themselves of being implicit in that situation. That's the action right there. The childish sense making, the childish storytelling. So that is safe to touch. It's a misunderstanding. Yeah, that's fascinating. Never um, heard that quite described that way. So you have a company, a, a program called the Insecurity Project. How have you dealt with your insecurities over time? And have you or do you, and if you're happy to share, like some of your insecurities? Because I think it's fascinating for someone working in this space. Yeah. I mean, if I hadn't dealt with my insecurities, I would be a terrible human being too preach a message around you can solve this if I hadn't solved my own. That is what I love about being a life coach. The only way to succeed in the industry is to embody your message because no one actually cares how I know what I know. They just want to know that I know it and they want to know that I know it well enough that when I share it with them, they could know it too. And so when they look into my eyes or they hear my voice, they just want to know I'm not full of shit. So the reason they know I'm not full of shit is because before I went anywhere near explaining this to anyone else, I had to free myself of my own insecurity. So if I'm not smoking what I'm selling, that's a terrible thing to do to the world. Um, So did you work with someone working through breaking down your insecurities or is this how you found the matrix of stuff that you work, you know, that you find? I did have coaches along the way, but being in the coach training environment meant I had access to resources and people and that was really where I was able to do the work in that environment. So I was so excited around being a coach and making money and serving the world and I started writing my first book and then as I'm stepping out, all of a sudden I realised there's this mountain of unresolved insecurity there where as a pastor I was known, liked, trusted, 
you know, I was good at it. It was a safe world. I was at the top of that world. So it was a very comfortable place. I step out of that and I'm a coach. No one knows who I am. No one endorsing me. No one saying I'm okay. And I'm like, hang on a minute. What if I'm not who I think I am? What if I'm a fraud? What if I'm about to be found out? And so all this insecurity showed up as I stepped out into the real world to pursue what I felt was true. So yeah, I I had to dive deep and fast into what I'd assumed was true about myself. And my distinction is the aim of the game is to be unhindered, completely unhindered by doubt, fear and insecurity at your current level of growth. The moment you do that, you will take new territory. You will expand your experience of life. You will do bigger things and better things with bigger people and more exciting spaces. And so inevitably, you'll bang your head on the next level of limiting belief. That's that's nice to hear, actually, because people think you do this kind of work and then you're done. But I think it's a lovely point that actually it's a continual growth. And like mates of mine say, when are you going to slow down? And when are you going to stop? I'm like, well, when I'm dead, because <laughs> to me, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm an absolute sponge. I love to learn and grow. And But I've never thought about it, the fact, you know, I always say about leveling up, but banging your head on the next expectations. It's, uh, yeah, a good visual to have, Jamin. Yeah, and it means it's evidence of growth, not regression. So to your point, I'm, I'm not insecure. There's not a single bit of energy directed to proving myself or defending myself at this current level of growth. I promise you, there's no way I could do what I do if that was not true. My goals and dreams keep scaring the shit out of me. Like I keep reaching for something bigger and better. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I worked it. I was good enough for that level, but am I good enough for that level? Like I worked it. I could work with these people, but could I work with these people? And so... I bang my head on the stories I told myself when I was a kid about who I could be and what it was like to be me and what I should hope for and, you know, all narratives that are sense-making paradigms that served me at a time but now are in the way. So the same seven practices that got me free at the last level of growth will get me free at the next level and the next level and the next level. Yeah, fascinating. Interesting work. So if there's someone listening that is loving the sound of this and um, would like to sort of start this kind of work. I mean, one, we have all your information in the show notes, but if they feel they can't work or afford to work with a coach one-to-one, how would you advise them to sort of start to maybe break down some of those insecurities or look at stuff? I mean, you've you've written five books, you're into your sixth book now, that could be something as well. But what would you recommend for people to start on this journey? So a bit of Yoda wisdom comes to mind. Uh, Yoda says, named must your fear be before banish it you can. So when I ask people what they're afraid of, most people are are so abstract. They think they're afraid of failing or they think they're afraid of being rejected or some form of that. That's not even close. It's a level beneath that. It's the personal implications of failure or rejection, i.e. if you were to fail, what would that reveal about you? If you were to be rejected, what does that prove is true about you? Ah, so you're actually afraid of what you think about you. You just don't want anyone to confirm that. So when you kind of realize, so what do you think about you? Like, what is the thing you think is wrong with you? And to name that, like, that's hard, but it's everything. Because until you name it, you can't change it. Until you realize at some point you accused yourself of something, some terrible problem, some inherent weakness or inadequacy. You said that was true about you. And you have been running and hiding from that thing that you said your whole life. And when you realize that that structure is in fact an opinion or an assumption, that's pretty weak ground. (laughs) You look up opinion in the dictionary, it says the lowest form of knowing anything. So you are most scared of an opinion about yourself. And not only that, you form this opinion when you're a kid. So you you are most scared 
of the opinion of a four-year-old. When you say it like that, you're like, okay, really? Is that it? I thought it was this monster that was going to consume. No, it's not actually a monster. It just looks like a monster. You're getting fooled by a kindergartner. So you could probably go and have a look and go back to that kid and see if that kid got it right. And here's a spoiler alert. They didn't get it right. They didn't. They rushed to a conclusion and have been, you've been suffering the rest of your life based on what you thought was wrong with you then, but there's nothing wrong with you. Don't let me tell you that. You're going to have to go find out for sure, but that's how this gets solved. Yeah, great. Now, some good points there, and you've uh, got me thinking for sure. I to think back. I'm going to start to do the work after this conversation. So, Damon, it has been such fun to chat to you. Jeepers, we've gone all around the place, and I've learned so much more about you than I ever knew as well. So, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. That was really interesting. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. 